cry of our hearts, Lord, that we give you control in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives, Lord. And truly apply the words, Lord, that we hear this morning as you soften our hearts and prepare them, Lord, to truly receive what you have for us as a congregation and for us in our personal lives. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's kind of funny that our verse today is about mercy. As I stand up here recovering from knee surgery, some would call it coincidence, but I definitely call it divine. So thank you for all the loving mercy you, the church, have shown to me and my family. It is certainly is a blessing to be so loved by all of you. Thank you for the prayers, for the cards, for the emails, for the numerous visits during this time of healing. And I must say, I've had a lot of time to reflect on our community, on the family church. And I will tell you, I am humbled and honored to be a part of what God is doing here at the family church. God in his sovereignty has grown the family church closer to one another as a united body of believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. He breathed life into our mortal bodies. He spoke the world into existence. He planned our days before one of them came to pass. He is the one that we are here to worship and glorify this morning. May we have zeal and desire to make much about Christ because He is the only one worth worshiping as He is the one and only true God. And at the family church, we are here to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord with all of our hearts and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. We believe in the inerrant, infallible Word of God that we follow and obey as our only authority to know and love Christ Jesus. May God just use us up for His purposes. May God mold and shape us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. May God empower us with His Spirit to be disciples of Christ and make more disciples of Christ. That's the point of the church. That's what we're here for. If we're not making disciples, we might as well stop and close the doors, lock them up. We need to be disciple makers. And I will say that what has been happening here is nothing short of revival. And I don't say that lightly. I am humbled to say that the Holy Spirit has been working mightily amongst this congregation, amongst the family church. The marks of revival have been upon us as we have seen people fall more deeply in love with Christ. A hungering and thirsting for God's word. A continued growth and dependence in prayer. A deeper understanding of the sin that often reigns in our hearts still, even as believers. But more so, a more mature and fuller Meaning and understanding of the grace that covers that sin. And our view of God has been expanding, developing, as we see God in all his majesty, in all his glory. God is moving and his spirit is powerfully working. And we are in awe of what he is doing here. 
And at the same time, it won't be smooth sailing. It never is smooth sailing. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy anything that God is building up. Right? We want to be known in heaven as servants of the Most High. But I will tell you this as well. We want to be known as he- in hell as mighty warriors of Christ as well. We want Satan to know each one of us individually by name. The family church is here to glorify God. If we are getting Satan's attention, you better believe that we are making an effect for the kingdom of God. May we continue to be diligent in prayer. May we continue to be diligent in fellowship with one another. We are supposed to be as close as our immediate families to one another. That's the the fellowship we see in the New Testament. That's what we're called to be. May we continue to just strive to make the word of God our authority and live by it. All to lift up, exalt, and magnify Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. So as we begin this morning, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you that we can come and worship you in spirit and in truth, Father. We thank you for your word that is our authority that allows us to see you clearer, allows us to fall more in love with Christ. We thank you that the word of God is the sword of the spirit that's continually piercing our hearts to know you and have a more proper understanding of even who you are. Father, I ask that the things that we discussed this morning will convict us, will encourage us. May your spirit work mightily on our hearts. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount. We have entitled this series, The Upside Down Kingdom. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 5, 7. We're going to be in Matthew 5, 7 this morning. We're going to get through one whole verse. Sorry, Casey. Um, So we're going to be on the fifth beatitude. We're going to unleash the fifth beatitude this morning. Matthew 5, 7 says this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we've discussed that the Beatitudes build on one another. We don't look at them separate as if they're their own by themselves. We have to remember what we've discussed about the Beatitudes. But most importantly, the Beatitudes are evidences of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And this is the fifth one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. At first glance, it may sound like Christ is urging the disciples just to practice mercy. Go out and find someone that needs help and help them. Or maybe go find someone who's poor and feed them. Or maybe just go and mow your neighbor's lawn. Or try to look for a person who's sick and take care of them. Look for ways to be merciful. Is that what Christ is saying in this fifth beatitude? Go and do something merciful for someone else? I mean, if that was the case, how is that different than the humanist who feeds the poor, serves others out of a mercy for the less fortunate? 
Does Christ want us just to do something? Is that the goal here? Just go out and do something? What is the old Nike tagline? Just do it. Is Christ saying just be merciful? I will say many churches are hearing motivational speeches on the Christian life as they espouse that the goal of Christianity is about doing good works. As if salvation is based on our deeds at all. The social gospel equates works with salvation. They say feed the poor, serve the needy, be in the community to earn your salvation. A.W. Pink referred to these people as merit mongers. I like that word, merit mongers. Merit mongers, those that think they can inherit salvation based on their good works. But this perspective, as we know, is alien. It's unknown in the New Testament that we actually are saved by what we do. And we'll turn to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to further explain this. This is a very known passage. Many of you probably even haven't memorized. But I'll read it anyway. I'll give you a minute to get there. And this is Paul talking to the church at Ephesus. And he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We do not depend on ourselves to be saved. If we did, we'd be more focused on ourselves than glorifying God. But not only that, Paul says that we'd have a reason to boast, right? He would say that we would think, okay, I'm going to do this deed and do that deed, and I'm looking at God saying, you know... Thanks for the um, ticket to salvation, but I really earned it. Why don't you pat me on the back, God? I'm really great, right? That's the attitude we'd have if we could actually earn our own salvation. That's the amazing thing about salvation. It's by grace that we're saved. We can't earn it, amen? And we at the family church reject the notion that our good works or deeds save us in any manner. We agree with Isaiah who said what? Our works are like... Filthy rags. We stand by the reformers who said that people are saved by faith alone, through grace alone. Period. Let me ask this question. Are the Beatitudes marching orders for us to follow? Or let me say it a little differently. Are the Beatitudes commands that we follow. Is that what the Beatitudes are? Almost like the Beatitudes are like the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, where the Israelites had to follow those commands to a T, right? Are the Beatitudes like the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament? I'm sad to say that many throughout history have said yes. Yes, they are. We look at those and we try to, okay, I got to be poor in spirit, so I got to figure out what that means and start being poor in spirit, or I got to mourn over my sin, so I got to start thinking about mourning over my sin. But that is not how the Beatitudes work. The answer is clearly they don't work that way. The Beatitudes are what God does to those who are His children. The Holy Spirit changes or transforms us to be poor in spirit, to mourn over our sin, to become meek, to 
Help us to hunger and thirst for the word of God. This is something that the Holy Spirit does to us. We can't whip that up in ourselves. The Beatitudes are who we are as the Holy Spirit sculpts us and molds us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This leads to point number one. Point number one says mercy is the disposition of the heart. Point number one says that mercy is the disposition of the heart. That means mercy becomes part of the Christian's character, their new character in Christ. Now that mercy is part of who we are, we now see others with eyes of mercy. Merciful people also will act on the mercy that is in their hearts, just the same as a person who's full of pride will act on the pride that is residing in their heart. And the, continue to explain this, turn with me to Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, and it's Jesus talking to his disciples about false teachers and false prophets. So turn with me to Matthew 7, 15 through 20. And Jesus says this, beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. Jesus clearly says what is inside of us will come out. That is why he said a good tree or the healthy tree will bear good fruit, right? Just the same as the the diseased tree or the bad tree will bear bad fruit. What is inside of us is what will come out. And it is who we truly are, Christ says. And let me ask you this question. Often when we sin, do we usually blame ourselves or blame other people? Or other circumstances. For example, you may have heard statements like this before. I know none of you here have ever said things like what I'm about to say. But there's some people that actually say things like this. You ready? You are the reason why I get so angry, honey. I know I've never said... Okay, I can't. my wife said I better not say that. Um, or... I wouldn't have to swear if you would just be a better child. Or, I am just having a bad day. That is why I'm so short with you. Or, I wouldn't be so mean if you would just listen to me. We blame others for our bad behaviors. We make excuses for our sinful attitudes. But Christ says what is in the heart is why we think and act the way we do. 
Is that a revelation to us? Because it doesn't seem like that's what we often are saying. Anger, fear, pride, worry, bad words, bad attitudes come from within. They come from our hearts, Christ says. But similarly, on the flip side, a merciful person will have actions that reveal that they have a heart of mercy. That means mercy is residing in their heart as well. Our actions and behaviors are a reflection of what is in our hearts. Point number two. Point number two says this. What comes out is what is inside. Point number two says what comes out is what is inside. It's that simple. Turn with me to Matthew 15, 16 through 19 to clarify this. And this is Jesus discussing with his disciples. Matthew 15. 16 through 19. And he's discussing with his disciples because his disciples have been influenced by the Pharisees and the Sadducees who act like everything outside of them is bad. And Jesus decides to give them a reality check and he says this, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This should horrify us because what Jesus is saying here, often our worst enemy lives within me, within you. The sin that we commit comes from our heart, he says. We talk about Satan speaking into our mind. Jesus says here, bad thoughts come from our hearts. That's exactly what he says here. Christ doesn't blame Satan, nor does he blame demons. He says it's because of our own sinful hearts. That means the evil thinking that we meditate on, the bad actions or behaviors that we still struggle with, reveals what is inside us. That's what he's saying here. It shows who we truly are in the present. That's what he says. But Christ says, happy are the merciful. Happy are the merciful. Why are they merciful? Why is anybody merciful? What causes people to have compassion on others? What transforms someone so much that they turn their energy away from self and focus on serving others? Well, this leads to point number three. Point number three says, grace receivers are mercy givers. Point number three says this, grace receivers are mercy givers. Turn with me to Romans 5, 6 through 11. That's Romans 5, 6 through 11. And this is Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Rome. I'm going to read about five passages, so you'll have to stick with me as we go through them here.
And Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We read here that God took the initiative and saved us. God had mercy on us recognizing that we were lost. We were facing his wrath. And Christ died for us, it says anyway, right? While we were still enemies, while we were rebelling and running away from God, Christ died for us anyway. And his grace covered us from head to toe. So I want to ask you, Do we see how much grace has been poured out on those of us who are now children of God? Do we just revel in that grace that we have received in Christ? Or, or, do we take it for granted? Do we take it for granted and get up and think of everything we have to face today? Or do we wake up and say, I can't believe I'm a saved child of God today. I can't believe it. I can't wait to just be an instrument to be used by him however he sees fit. Diedrich Bonhoeffer has just a great book, or great books actually, and he says this in a quote. He says, Grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And we are recipients of that costly grace. But for God to give us grace, he first had to be merciful to us. God in his mercy saw we were lost. We were destined for hell. Right? We were destined for hell before we were saved. And he gave us what we didn't deserve. His sovereign grace. With such grace poured out on us, how can we not be mercy givers? With such grace poured out on us, how can we not be mercy dispensers? Mercy is now part of our new DNA. It's now part of our new nature in Christ. We begin to see others with the same mercy that God has had on us. This leads to point number four, the final point. Mercy and grace are rooted in love. 
mercy and grace are rooted in love. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. God's holy, inerrant, infallible word says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And the ESV version here says, controls. The NIV uses the word compels. So Christ's love controls or compels us because God's love has been poured out on us and we in turn are loving others with the same love we have been loved with. We can't disconnect mercy and grace from love. We as believers know love like no one else. Do we realize that? The love that we've experienced from Christ, no one else has experienced that type of love before. The love that we receive from Christ, Paul says, compels us or moves us to action. It moves us to action. What does this love look like? I know many times we've discussed the definition of biblical love, what love is, so I'm just going to go right to the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. We're just going to look at what love is, give some clarity on this foggy word in our society, as they seem to always think love is connected to how you're feeling, in which we read from the love chapter, it often has nothing to do with how we feel. And it says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always Trust, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Are we compelled by love? Are we loving others this way? Often, often I'm sad to say that those that are closest to us, we take for granted. I don't know if you've realized that, but that's just the case. Often those that are closest to us are most Take it for granted. Christ says that those who are mine will be loving. That's translated as will be patient, will be kind, will not be self-focused, will not be jealous, will not be easily angered. That's the love we're talking about. How well are we doing, brothers and sisters, with this type of love? How is your marriage? How is your marriage? Would your spouse describe you as merciful? Would your spouse describe you as full of grace? And if you're not married, would your 
family members describe you that way? Or your friends? How patient are we with others? Do we hold grudges and fight for our own way? Or are we forgiving and seek unity and peace at all cost? That could be seeking peace and unity at all cost with our marriage, with our family members, with our children, with our church. Are we being unifying or are we causing division? Because that's called rebellion against God. Does that sound like us this morning? Merciful people love others because they have been so loved by God. That's what we're called to. In conclusion, Jesus said, Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How happy are we this morning? How happy are we this morning? The Beatitudes do reveal what a mature Christian looks like, but the Beatitudes also reveal what a happy, joyful filled with the Lord person looks like as well. Are we walking with Christ this morning? If you are a Christian, mercy is now part of your new DNA as the Holy Spirit has changed and transformed your heart. It runs in the family. It started with our Father. we got to blame our Father for this one. God. He has given his people the Holy Spirit. Everyone who is adopted into the family of God now are called to be merciful. It's part of our new genetics. And some of you may be here for the first time and are not sure about this whole Christian thing and about talking about the Bible being our authority and Christ being our Savior. If you have any questions, I'll be up front after service. Would love to visit and talk with you. And Um, If this doesn't work for you, Casey and myself will be here throughout the week. But not only that, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ who know the Word of God as well, and we all have wisdom. If we have the Word of God, we have all the counsel to help anybody with whatever issues people are struggling with. Amen? But we would, if anybody does need anything, Casey or myself would love to pray or help you with any issues that you struggle with. Because we are confident in what the Word of God says. If you're having a marital issue, you're struggling with depression, fear, worry, whatever, we are confident that the Word of God can give you help in whatever issue. Because we recognize the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. That means it's empowered by the Holy Spirit to work on anybody's hearts. All of our hearts. But may we be a church. May we be a church who loves God as we show grace and mercy to others. So everyone, if you can please stand. Please stand with me. I'm still going to sort of sit half stand, but you guys all stand, please. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer, a closing prayer, and then you will all be dismissed. Holy Father, we thank you for your mercy. Father, we recognize that you've had such mercy on us as such sinful people that struggle daily. If we don't believe we struggle, let's just ask our spouse and they'll remind us, Father, help us, help us to recognize our sinful struggles and 
More importantly, we thank you for the grace that continues to cover us where we struggle. We thank you for your unfathomable grace that is poured out on our hearts and has changed us to have victory over sin. Help us, Father, to walk in the power of your Spirit and to be mighty warriors of truth for your glory and honor. Help us not only to be mature believers in Christ at the family church, help us to be lights in a generation that is sinful like every other generation before our generation, Father. May we be faithful to you. May we love others the way you've loved us. In Christ's name, amen.